Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So nice to sit together, isn't it? So, are there any specific questions about sitting practice before we go forward? Yes. Today, um, before like before the yoga class this morning, there was kind of a little discussion that sparked up between um, to us from the group and someone from outside the group, uh-huh. and she had mentioned that eventually the objective is to get away from having the object. You know, I, I don't love the paradigm that eventually yeah. the objective. <laughs> yeah. um, I would say that uh, it's different things at different times. Okay. So that's why I really like the model of the four foundations of mindfulness. So again, the first one being mindfulness of the body via breathing. Mm-hmm. Right? So as you're breathing, aware of the body. The second foundation of mindfulness is feeling tone. So noticing how sensations fall into the category of pleasant and unpleasant. That's what I mean by feeling. Right? So we have experiences that are pleasant, they're unpleasant. And then the third foundation is noticing mental states. Right? And noticing how, how in response to different feeling tones, there are different mental states. And then the fourth foundation is really bringing mindfulness to everything. So that's sort of the, the sequence. Right? That's one way meditation's taught. I really, really like that model. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, what happens is when you're paying attention, for example, to the breath, you're coming back over and over, notice a mental state, come back, right? Then eventually the object, the breath, falls away. And there's, you're just sitting and there's just openness. And then it's impermanent. So there's no object, right? And then it's impermanent. And then the habit mind comes in. And then you're caught again. And then when you're caught, you come back. And you start with the object. But the idea that, oh, eventually you're so advanced. Right? (laughs) It's the same thing in yoga practice, right? In yoga practice, no matter how advanced you get, downward facing dog. And then you practice for 30 years, and you come back again after 30 years to downward-facing dog, and it's like, whoa. And every year you see downward-facing dog, 
in a completely different way. So it's not like you get bored, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so it's true that sometimes you let go of the object, but I would be careful about a paradigm where it's like, oh, well, that's just for beginners, and then eventually you let go of the, the whole thing. There's a story where someone says to the Buddha, you've been practicing mindfulness of the breath for your whole, for 50 years, right? whole adult life. Uh, what did you gain? And he says, uh, I can't tell you what I've gained, but I can tell you what I've let go of. <laughs> Was there another hand up? Yes. So like the idea of using an object like a mantra, yeah. you find that that's, some people have told me that like the beginning, a beginning, and that yeah. it's more advanced to use a mantra because you start with your breath. Yeah. Um, is it still mindfulness when you're putting your mindfulness into the mantra? Sure. Yeah, no problem. The breath is called a japa mantra, which means the mantra that has no meaning, which I really, really like. Mm-hmm. And even with japa meditation, you said like a mala, the idea of using an object, you were saying. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. And it's still mindfulness in japa meditation, so it's not just mindful meditation being just mindfulness of the breath, it could be mindfulness. You can be mindful of anything. And I think we shouldn't be too strict about what the object should be. Um, but I think different objects can do different things. And the thing I like about mindfulness of breathing is that it's embodied. It's not visual, and that the technique to get deeper into mindfulness of breathing is feeling. And it brings us into deeper realms of feeling and deeper realms of embodiedness, which, uh, which is, I think, essential in deeper meditation practice, where uh, it's very easy to get disembodied and get spacey, too pranic. You see those people around sometimes. (laughs) They're like vibrating. It's like, that's great, but you should pay your taxes. (laughs) Never mind that, you should get a job. Do you have your hand? Yeah. Is the act of saying a mantra important for, is it, like if it's in another language, or is understanding what the mantra means? Yeah. So uh, for me, I really like, if I'm chanting something, I want to know exactly what it means. So this drives people crazy because I really like doing things in English. <laughs> and people are like, oh, that's not pure, you know? And wherever you go in the world, they think their language is the holiest language. So if you go to Israel, they think Hebrew is the holiest language. And in India, Sanskrit is considered the holiest. Like wherever you go, they think like their old language is the holiest language. Latin is the holiest language. Um, it's true that there are some mantras where the vibration of the word will hit different areas in one's body and can be healing for that reason. But even when you're sitting, if you're stirred up, when you inhale, you can say to yourself, peace in. And when you exhale, you can say to yourself, peace out. Can you picture this? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, this is what I teach a lot to teenagers when they're really like, worked up. When you sit, and we just sit for two minutes, When you sit, as you inhale, 
just say to yourself, peace in. Or just have the thought float up with the inhale. And then when you exhale, just peace out. Or little kids, I get them to lie down and put a stuffy on their belly. And when they inhale, I just want them to notice how the stuffy goes up. And when they exhale, just notice how the stuffy goes down. And see if you can get five of them. It's like up, down, it's one. Up, down. And then we work on not forcing it up and forcing it down, but just letting the stuffy go up and letting the stuffy go down. And then I always say to them after, your breath is your best friend. So no matter how screwed up your mind is, and no matter how mean your parents are, your breath is always loyal. As long as you're alive, your breath is always going to be there. It's like you should never go into a bad neighborhood without accompaniment. <laughs> so if your mind is heading into a bad neighborhood, then you need somebody to go with you. So you just take your breath. So all these are, these are all mantras. These are all ways of, of, of taking an idea and gluing it to the breathing to help the mind stay concentrated. But when you get into just the feeling of the breath, that's what I'm trying to... I hope you're getting the hang of this. But, so, because personally, I think the best technique, I hate saying this, but it's true. <laughs> Don't you like that? Yeah. Is feeling. Is feeling. Because we're so disembodied. We're so disembodied. So I really like people getting the feeling of the breath. And the key is, is that when you feel your way into the breath, this really cool thing happens, which is that, so at first it feels like there's me breathing. Everybody knows that, right? Oh, I've come back to the breath. There's me, there's a breath. But when you use feeling, you very quickly lose the sense of me. Really, really fast. So if you keep, and I don't know if any of you felt this, but there's a point where you're staying with the breath, staying with the breath, and then there's just breathing. Mm -hmm. But there's not the self-consciousness of the me that's doing the breathing. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and, and it's called samadhi. So this is when the self-reference falls away. And then it comes back again and goes, whoa, that was amazing, that was so amazing. I'm like really advanced meditator. I'm gonna open my own lineage and make money at this. Yeah, go on, Oprah. Yeah. So using like an affirmation or something like, I am strong, I am grounded, is that not kind of defeating the purpose, like having the mantra that's great, I am focused? Yeah, it's fine. You can use it. You can, everything works. So that's what you need to get settled. But over time, if, to start to sort of embody the practice, we want the meanness to start to fade away. Because the meanness is just a linguistic superimposition on top of our experience. The experience is not happening to me, it's just happening. It's like you're, if you close your eyes when you're meditating, you'll notice that sensations 
don't happen to you. And they don't even happen in your body. They just happen in awareness. The idea that sensations are happening in your body is an idea. Like if your eyes are closed and you can't see your body, you have an image, but you're saying to yourself, oh, the sensations are happening in your body. But if you examine that more closely, they're not actually happening in body. That's an idea. They're happening in awareness, you see. So in meditation practice, this whole project of separating out a me, it starts falling away. And at a deep level, it's teaching you over the years not to hold on to me. And the only way you can start to see that is when things are peaceful. But then you can really use it when you're caught, when you're hooked. Do you have your hand up? Yeah. I like the breath myself. Um, yeah. But I've been exploring masters lately. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember when I used to teach, uh, I, 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 I could never understand why we had to say Trigonasana or we could say Trang. Like, mm-hmm. What's with that? And then, um, mm-hmm. then I started uh, taking this mantra course mm-hmm. some uh, very or something and very whatever and uh, <laughs> and he was saying how the Sanskrit language starts out with sounds yeah. that affect certain parts of the body and then they develop up the language the yeah. words from that yes. and I thought hmm that sounds tricky uh, I wasn't quite sure I believe that so anyway I tried that guy tree mantra yeah I tried that one day, then that night, I had like 3D Blu-ray amazing dreams. It was like off the chart, I'm thinking. And I hardly ever remember my dreams, and I could remember every little detail in this dream. The people, what they said, it was just... So after that, I was totally convinced that the sound thing, that there might be something to Trigonasana, Trigonasana, rather than trying to. So that's my experience. Yeah, I mean, Sanskrit does work like that in in the sense that it is a language that is created out... Its order, its logic, comes out of how sounds come out of the body. Right? The the first sound is... The first sounds are like ga, ka, Mm -hmm. like way down, as opposed to like (laughs) which is like way out here. So the language goes from the throat out through the dental aspect of the mouth. Um, and then um, if you look at traditional maps of Indian tantric uh, mm-hmm. physiology, there are chakras, and each chakra has a flower. Have you seen this before? Mm-hmm. And each flower has a petal. And if you add up all the petals, you get all the letters of the alphabet. Because the letters all sit uh, in the area in your body that vibrates when you make that sound. So this is all very thoughtful and has taken a lot of research. They didn't even have fMRI machines at <laughs> Ivy League schools. They must have felt, maybe they felt it. Exactly. Well, because the one yeah. is like lamb, yang, yeah, yeah. round, I forgot. Yeah. So that's when you take those those syllables, those mm-hmm. seed syllables, and you put them together. 
and then you get those sounds. Mm. So. That's what the Earth swings at, 7.310, right? I don't know. Yes. I've never studied it. Yes, the right. Earth actually swings at right. 7.310. Interesting. Oh. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, I'm distracted a lot sitting this time with my uh, leg falling asleep. Yeah. Any suggestions around that? Well, we're sitting such a short time. So if a leg falls asleep, just notice what happens. <laughs> if every time you sit, your leg falls asleep, you need to work with your posture. Yeah, so but if you're sitting one time and you, the leg starts falling asleep, you should really just meditate on it just, and watch what happens. You know? And if it's consistent, is being... Yeah, you could be higher. You might need to get the, the cushion to move further back so it doesn't touch your hamstrings because that can shut off. You, you want to make sure that your feet are really so, on something soft. So there's different things you can do. Yeah. These are good questions this morning. I was wondering, um, you said we're, you know, the goal was to kind of let go of me. And in some of the meditation... When you let go of me, we feel more connected? Yeah. yeah. It's sort of an interesting paradox. Because when you let go of me, then you can be yourself. <laughs> What's that? The story of me. Yeah. So actually, the goal of practice is to be yourself. But you can't be yourself if you're trying to be yourself. <laughs> yeah. So I usually say that in the books, it says the goal of practice is enlightenment. But street level, the goal of practice is eccentricity. Because you're free to be who you are. You're free. It's very interesting, you know, when you read the stories, especially in Zen literature, of students who practice deeply, and then had real shifts in their life. Usually afterwards, they then go practice for another 10 or 20 years, and then they go into the woods, or they go into the city, and they go to work and become anonymous. Nowadays, if you practice, and you have an important shift, you write books, <laughs> and you go on Oprah. That's why us Buddhists, you know, are really skeptical of uh, spiritual teachers. <laughs> because um, the spirit of, of, of practice in Buddhist lineages, um, you don't stop. So you develop relationships with teachers and you practice with them your whole life. That's it. Um, where were we? Um, the self and the self. Was there an, an, another the question? No. I think Leslie had her hand up next. Well, just to what you're saying, like if when you, you let go of the I. Yeah. Um, I've been to a lot of national parks and I was always <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there was this wonderful kind of, like, kind of realization that, like, you know, just nice. Myself, but then all of a sudden I want to start looking at that. Like, who's that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that... I mean, so, is that and then at some point you have to notice it. Okay. Yeah. 
So when I was sitting this morning, I had this great idea for a book. So I saw the cover of the book was Canada, the map of Canada, and each in each province was a national park. But the national park was like grief, depression, anxiety, and that would be each chapter of the book. And they'd be color coded, and like each chapter would be like what happens when there's grief, how you can work with it, here are the tools you need. And I was like, oh, there's a great book. And I thought, oh, yeah, come back again to the, the breathing. And this happens like every week I have an idea for a new book. And I was like, oh, and then come back again to the breath. And this is something that's important because, especially for those of you who are creative, you know, you'll have lots of ideas when you sit. But, like, they're not all good. <laughs> and it's not just that they're not all good. It's that if you're not embodied, you'll actually go do them. And that's really bad. Like, just because you have creative energy, it doesn't mean you should do something with it. You may have some, oh, I've got a really good film project, you know, or I've got an amazing piece of music starting. Well, it doesn't mean you should do it. That, that's wisdom, you know. Because also, you, you have a lot of bad ideas, too. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I had this um, this little little uh, epiphany one time when I was sitting, and um, it actually gave me a really useful tool, which is that I, I, was, I was my mind was doing all those things and making shopping lists and coming up with brilliant creative ideas and thinking about you know my relationship with my mother and all those mm -hmm. things, and all of a sudden I had this realization that all of those things were just thinking about me. That's all they yeah. were. Every one of them yeah. was just telling a story about me and thinking about what people think about me. Every single one of them was just thinking yeah. about me, even though I thought they, even though in my thinking I was thinking they weren't about me. They all yeah. were about me. Yeah. And um, so I thought, like, um, it actually it came to me like that moment in The Matrix where she says, There is no spoon. Yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden I went, There's no me. There's yeah. no me. Yeah. Which is kind of an intellectual idea, but it was like as soon as as soon as I I actually used that like yeah. a monkey wrench for quite a while. As soon as my mind would go that, I'd go, "There's no me. There's yeah. no I. Who are you thinking about? Yeah, what yeah. are you doing? There's yeah. no you." Yeah. And it would just be like everything would go clear then. Yeah, yeah. It was actually really useful because yeah. I realized how I'd been deluding myself a little bit there, thinking yeah. I wasn't thinking about me when I was. Thinking about yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing. That. Yeah. Um, just jumping off of that point. Yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about the ego much, but I find the concept of ego to be quite confusing. Okay. I'm wondering if we can go there. <laughs> let's, let's try and get to it in the next day or so. Um, I just want to add one, one more thing. Just kind of, Carmen made me think of it. Should I be calling you Carmen? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> She goes by many names. No, So, we're consumers. No matter how you cut it, we are. We're so trained to consume things, to shop. So, when you start following your breath, you're going to meet a lot of resistance. 
because it goes against the whole way your personality has been built. You know? So you're going to want to shop for other techniques that make cool things happen or make you feel good. And, and like to really watch that and to not buy into that. Because most of you probably know more techniques than somebody knew 2,000 years ago. So you, have, you don't need any more techniques. You've got the techniques. Now work with the mind that's fighting the technique. Because your practice is only working if there's the fighting going on. You see? So if you get up in the morning to sit and you really don't want to sit, that means your practice is working. Because the part of you that doesn't want to sit is the part of you that needs to practice. Is the part of you, the ego, that's saying, I just want to do what's comfortable and make coffee or whatever, right? But actually, then when you sit, you get up after and you feel so much better than you would have if you stayed in bed watching YouTube videos. Whatever. morning's meditation, I found doing a mantra quite vertically in my body. So yeah. one person was doing that, yeah. and then a second voice came up horizontally above and started making a judgment. Yeah. And then a third little me came over and said, okay, Ashley, let's stop making a judgment yeah. and go back to our mantra. So I have three voices, yeah. and I often will find there's three yeah. in my head. Yeah. Um, but it reminded me a lot of yesterday's conversation when we were talking about Dukkha. And depression runs really deep in my family. So seeing yeah. my mom and sister struggle yeah. and come in and out and seeing them yeah. connect to that little voice that will bring them back out and have that awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that idea that we are not our thoughts. It's so interesting to see three voices happen yeah. in your head and witness that there's voices yeah. happening. Yeah. And how hard it must be to be in a depressed state and not know how to deal with voices. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you believe them. You think that's really like that? <coughs> depression is tricky because there's a level of depression that there's a level of melancholy that's really important that we avoid like crazy. So I, I think our culture is really scared of depression. So when people come to me who are depressed, I'm always very careful to not fall for the diagnosis so fast. Because melancholy is a really regenerative state in a hyper culture. You know? So let's not be so fast sometimes to say I'm depressed and like I gotta do something about it. And then there's a spectrum of course where there's also the depression that the only thing that works to begin with is medication because you have to manage it somehow. And then you bring in a practice or, or a therapeutic tool that then explores it more deeply. But um, there is a kind of melancholy that is a national park that's worth spending time in and visiting and getting to know. And um, the problem is, is when um, within that state, the voices, as you, you say, or the story, I would say, just takes over everything. 
and then there's a, a rumination that starts happening. And that's when depression starts becoming um, non-creative, which is it just becomes ruminating, like a vortex, the water going down a toilet. It just sucks you in. Yeah. more on why like melancholy is it's worth spending time in is it just because you can learn and there is a creative process in there is that it's the blues man <laughs> it's the blues Duke Ellington had 50 songs with the word blue in the title and um, our, we're all like so up here you know like so crazy that we need melancholy. We all need melancholy in order to like, come down out of the craziness, the, the level of stimulation that we live at. And in the, ter- in the national park of melancholy, there is uh, so much to explore. And it's the only thing that gets people reading poetry. So um, this is really important. The Canada Council of the Arts asked me to say that. <laughs> I get a little royalty every time I say that because po- the poets are going extinct in Canada. Oh, that's uh, you know, I have a tendency to always look this way. Has anybody noticed this? I always do this. I don't know. It's so it's terrible. So just wait. <laughs> Yeah. Teachers, both Buddhist and mm-hmm. yoga, mm-hmm. and I think um, I know you have a respect for tradition as do yeah. I, and I, I think it's really um, important to pay attention to that. But it's such an eclectic world, and sometimes the tradition can be a constraint, right? Yeah. So I don't know if you can just speak to that. Well, first of all, I'm conservative. In my own life, I really love practicing with teachers and staying loyal to them and having a relationship that goes on a long time because uh, it's like uh, apprenticeship. Just like if you want to learn woodworking, uh, you need to apprentice with someone for a long, long time. You want to learn how to uh, ride a horse, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, it probably takes 30 years, right? And that's not just getting to know the animal. It's getting to know your life, right? And so I don't think there's a way to rush that. You know, nowadays everyone says a craft takes 10,000 hours, <laughs> right? I think it's probably more like 40,000, mm-hmm. you know? And there isn't a way to rush it. You can't just take a course in mindfulness and like know it, right? It's, it's a practice for your life. But um, when I teach, I don't feel like the lineage, I don't feel like one lineage that I've studied in can meet the complexity of what's going on in our culture. So I teach in a way that's drawing on a lot of things, but the techniques are all lineage-based. And it drives my teachers nuts. 
Makes them crazy. That you reach. Oh yeah. Else? Makes them crazy. Because I think you're not pure. Yeah, they want me to be in the family, you know. Mm-hmm. So when I'm with them, I'm in the family. But I can't teach like that. Mm-hmm. You know? So it used to be a struggle for me. Now it doesn't feel like a struggle anymore because I'm 40. <laughs> yeah, I turned 40 a couple days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. So, but basically, we're celebrating my birthday here. <laughs> um, so, uh, where was I? I mean, for the audience, that was struggle. So, so what happened for you at 40 to free Um. It probably doesn't have to be with, it doesn't have to do, I think, with being 40. I think it has to do with having a baby and feeling that I have a small baby, or he has me, we're stuck together in a world that's in trouble. And I feel like if, if these practices can't, if these practices can't meet the needs of our culture, then they're going to die. And they're going to become just practices for people with privilege who aren't affected so much by climate change or other issues. But uh, because there's this little baby, I want to make sure that whatever I'm teaching is going to benefit him. How is that Well, when I was 30, I just had no idea how to be a dad. It's like, just, you know, running around doing the best I could, supporting my family. Um, and also, uh, you know, every year you think differently about what you do. Mm-hmm. So that's part of why I left Center of Gravity in Toronto. Because I feel like I wanted to spend more time thinking through how to reach the culture with more impact. But really... We are a privileged group. I, mean, yeah. I don't know any poor person who practices, I mean, I don't know about other countries yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. who goes to retreats and practices yeah. there. Yeah. Spirituality like this. I mean, yeah. It seems like a pretty privileged set of people. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I know lots of people who practice who don't have privilege. Right. But you do have to have your basic needs met to practice. And that's why poverty is dukkha. Because in a state of poverty, it's hard to practice. I'm not talking about voluntary poverty. And, um, and when you're in a culture that's really violent, it's hard to practice. Uh, or unsafe, it's hard to practice. So because everybody here has privilege, we have huge blind spots. Mm-hmm. And that's one issue. I won't follow that too much right now. Well, but the one thing I will say, just to respond to what you're saying, is your privilege is a weapon unless you know how to work with it. And that's why I hope this message of going deep in practice for our life, but also to work with others, isn't lost. Because otherwise, um, our privilege is just a blind spot. Mm -hmm. And we're not using it to do something. And it's really, really important. We've taken so much. 
anybody ever feel this way? Mm -hmm. We've taken so much, and we have to give back. Well, I'm just very aware of it in, because I've taught kindergarten for many years. Yeah. I'm very aware of what kids come into the room with. Uh-huh. And yeah. um, in terms of everything, yeah. you know, material things, mm. language, yeah. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Like it's true. It's, it's interesting to see a couple of kids who you view as having equal potential one yeah. had every advantage yeah. and the other hasn't yeah. differences that follow them through yeah. their lives because mm-hmm. yeah. um, you patiently had, had your hand up for so long back to the talking about experiencing melancholy yeah. I'm kind of glad you brought up this too because I wonder if you have any ideas about how one can experience that melancholy without trying to brush off, without being like a total downer to the young kid in your life, <laughs> you know, like I feel like I have to be on most of the time, yeah. like a four-year-old, yeah. and I'm also okay with saying, you know, like, I'm just feeling a little sad, don't worry about uh-huh. it, my daughter's sensitive enough, sensitive enough that she'll, she'll notice if I seem down and she'll ask me about it, but I don't want it to be a burden, so I wonder how... Yeah. Other than you're choosing a way to feel melancholy, how can you like experience that in your life without being a downer to this? I sense that you're doing it. <laughs> I mean, that you're doing it. I don't think that there's a way to do it. Okay. I, I think that you're doing it. You know, the, the, the child psychologist Donald Winnicott, who I think is a Buddha, had an incredible um, term that he called uh, the good enough mother. Has everybody heard this? The good enough mother, which is uh, you just need to be good enough. And the sign that you're good enough is when your child, this is his quote, can go on being. In other words, that the kid can be alone in your presence and play. That he thought this was the sign, uh, the, the healthiest sign of uh, a child's growth is that they can play and be at just the right distance from the parent that they don't need the parent. That, in other words, they can go on being. They can feel a sense that they're being. They're, they're not impinged on, you know. Are you okay? Are you having fun? Here, have a new toy, you know. And they're all, yeah, the, heli- the helicopter parent. So, um, I, I really love this. And, uh, Last year, uh, two years ago, I gave a whole series of talks on Carl Jung. And I keep, in my mind, I'm already rehearsing. I want to give some talks on Winnicott. Because he's probably the most, uh, I think, uh, Buddhist psychologist ever. Mostly because he worked with kids. On his hands and knees, he played with kids. And also his audience in his writings. I don't know how many of you have read Winnicott. But his audience were mothers after the war in England, and not psychoanalysts. So his writing has a really beautiful flavor. And um, anyways, did, did I respond to what you were saying? Oh, your hand's still up, so. It's amazing how you do that. Is that like an aesthetic practice you're working in? On the topic of children, also yesterday you talked about 
and how we can just experience the craving and, and let it go. And, yeah. and I, I enjoy that practice for myself, you know, even just yeah. in terms of like chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Um, but a four year old doesn't have quite the same, I guess, control. And I wonder if you have any insights on how to mm-hmm. teach that to children yeah. other than just yeah. showing them, like, yeah. right now I'm craving chocolate. Mm-hmm. And let me say one thing about that, and then we'll have a break, because I never got to anything. That I <laughs> but it's good. This is good, I think, to also like break the formality and just talk. Um, uh, adolescence now in many cities in the United States begins at nine years old. So puberty is now nine years old. And this is because of pollution and diet. This is what the scientists say. Nine years old. And um, so adolescence is now the longest it's ever been in human history. It's the longest it's ever been in human history. And the mortality rate of adolescence is the highest it's ever been in human history because of ethical choices drinking and driving, uh, drug use, and so on. So um, there's been a lot of work at the intersection of neuroscience and meditation practice to understand this. Because the Dalai Lama is really interested in uh, Dharma practice, neuroscience, and young people. This is his passion, are are these three areas. So um, what scientists are telling us is that the thing we need to work with is that that's the area, that's the time in one's life when the frontal cortex is developing, which is the area of your brain that you use to make ethical decisions. And what kids need to learn is how to delay gratification. How to delay gratification. So the Dalai Lama has this amazing rephrasing of meditation practice. Do you know what he calls it for adolescents? He calls it the ethics of restraint. And so what the neuroscientists are saying to the Dalai Lama is what we need to do is we need to teach kids before adolescence, how to delay gratification. In other words, I was talking about this last night, right? When you really, really want something, how to ride it out. How to ride it out. So that when adolescence hits, which is now such a long period of time, when cravings arise, they have tools where they can work with it. And this is... uh, and so phrasing meditation practice as delaying gratification, I think it's a beautiful way of thinking about it. Because that's what we're doing, right? I called it frustration because we're adults. I call it tolerating frustration, right? Or working with wanting. But what I think the Dalai Lama is doing that's interesting is showing how not gratifying the craving is an ethical practice. Is an ethical practice. And if we can get to kids before they become adolescents, then they can have the tools to work with what's really eroding 
not just their lives, but, but their social structures and uh, the quality of their play. So um, this is something to think about when you have a really small kid, is how can you help them? Um, how can you assist them? How can you be close to them? Where not only you're teaching them how to delay gratification, but you're modeling it. You're modeling it also. You're modeling it. I said that was the last. And you had a chance, so your turn. Your turn. Suzanne. Suzanne's going to get the last word. Well, what I want to say to that is, the contradiction to that is um, today's problems of technology, because having a child watching an iPad is instant gratification. It's not about the candy, it's about the wiring, and the direct wiring in the brain, which is uh, really what changes yeah. the structure. And children watching television or any kind of light impulse, it's not, it's not the content, it's the yes. elect the actual light yeah. that stimulates yeah. the, the wiring that creates direct wiring rather than the wiring that we're supposed to have. Yeah. And um, what you said two days ago about uh, every time you know you Google something and your page comes yeah. up, that is instant gratification. That is sh online shopping. Yeah. Um, and that is the first thing that needs to be taken away from children these days. Yeah. They, yes. cannot, they shouldn't watch television. No. They shouldn't have iPads and mm. iPhones because mm. that is physiologically yes. something that re will rewire the brain and that yeah. will create absolute havoc. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> I read a statistic. Uh, What's that? It's important for the parents to be there I mean, and, and, and have this, whatever information that the child is seeking mm -hmm. somewhere else. Yeah. The parent can be there to yeah. provide yeah. and do it more. Yeah. Organically again. Yeah. Uh -oh. So, yeah, I, I just, I, I read a statistic that for every hour that you watch YouTube, 6,000 hours are uploaded. Mm. Not interesting. Wow. Yeah. For every hour you're on YouTube, 6,000 hours. Yeah. So, um, this seems like a good time to have a break. And uh, then we'll come back to what we were supposed to do.